Mission Control podcast with Liana Downey. We're here today speaking with Kate Campana, who is the CEO of Speak Up Africa. Welcome, Kate. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Kate, you have had a very interesting career journey, and I'd like to just spend a little bit of time hearing about the arc of how you came to be where you are today. Can you tell listeners a bit about your journey? Sure. I started actually in Africa and now I'm back in Africa, so it's a bit of an arc. I started as a Peace Corps volunteer when I was 21, right, coming out of college, and I went to what was then Zaire, which is now Democratic Republic of the Congo. I went to Africa originally because I spoke French already, and so they were eager to put French speakers in Africa. But, you know, it wasn't born wondering about Africa necessarily. So it's been very much of a journey of discovery and falling in love over time. So I worked in the Peace Corps for a couple of years in Congo as a teacher, which is a common placement with the Peace Corps. And then when I came back, I was I was just very suffused with the notion that I didn't really know anything and I needed to have some professional training so that it could be of use. I was very captivated by the continent and I knew I wanted to work there, but I didn't feel like I could bring anything to bear. I wasn't a water engineer or, you know, an ag specialist or anything. And so I ended up coming back and going to graduate school and I ended up actually studying to be a lawyer, which is a little, in retrospect, odd. And and then when I got out of law school because of law, law school costs, I ended up getting a job on Wall Street, which turned out to be maybe one of the best, most applicable things that I've done ironically, for my African career. But I worked for three years at a very large New York-based law firm called Sherman & Sterling and did a lot of cross-border transactions, so financings in Latin American countries, in Eastern European countries, in what was then called the emerging markets, and learned a lot about doing business and what is necessary to get things done across border and what's necessary for financers to be interested in promoting projects across the world. That was an amazing experience and um, one that I've called on repeatedly. A big part of my job there, I was affiliated at the time with a very senior partner who was interested in making a difference in the world. And I, because of my Peace Corps connections and others, had a lot of connections with a a variety of nonprofit organizations. And so with his power and connections in finance and and the legal world and my connections in the nonprofit world, we formed a bit of a of an unusual partnership at the law firm and did an awful lot of uh, pro bono work for a number of clients, including pioneering some really interesting cross-border transactions that at the time were called debt for nature swaps, where we basically converted country debt into covenants on the part of countries to save rainforests in Peru and Panama and Ecuador and Madagascar. So then, Kate, how did you move from that work to tackling the issue of diseases in Africa? I ended up leaving the law and moving back to Africa and ran the Africa arm of a nonprofit called ACDI VOCA, which was a technical assistance organization working in primarily the agricultural and small business sector in around the world. And I was running their East Africa operation. I lived in Uganda and 
worked throughout North and, and East Africa, setting up programs throughout those regions. Later, I came back to New York and worked again with that same partner that I had worked with at Sherman Sterling at an organization called the Emerging Markets Traders Association. And that was an organization that was created in order to level the playing field for a variety of financial institutions to trade in debt instruments across Latin America and Eastern Europe. And and then ended up, when I was ready to jump back in, con- contacting my whole network and trying to figure out what made sense given my disparate background to do. And I met a philanthropist named Raymond Chambers who had discovered that the world had convened around the so-called Millennium Development Goals and in doing so realized that it was such an unusual global consensus around reducing poverty and improving health around the world. And uh, so he threw his weight behind those goals. And in doing so, he realized that one of the biggest barriers to economic and health progress on the continent of Africa was malaria and began to understand that if one were to just address malaria as a logistical business problem, that it was entirely preventable and could be eliminated from the face of Africa, which would make the difference, a profound difference in the ability of Africa to meet its economic job and health goals. And so he formed an organization called Malaria No More, and I was his first employee there. And we set about trying to figure out how we could bring business principles to the problem that so many folks had spent uh, generations working on. And the scientific community had discovered some insecticide-treated mosquito nets and realized a tremendous health benefit associated with those mosquito nets. And so Malaria No More, under Ray's leadership, began to generate kind of the energy behind the idea of getting enough mosquito nets to cover all of Africa. So Malaria No More played a a small role in, in the global fight, but in mobilizing attention and interest in covering every single person in Africa with a mosquito net and thereby beginning to drive malaria down dramatically. And the last six years has driven malaria down two thirds, which is kind of an unprecedented thing in the in the world of public health. And as we, the global community, got mosquito nets to cover everybody in Africa, we began to realize that there was a real fundamental problem there, and that related to whether or not people consistently used the mosquito nets, and if they did get ill, if they consistently sought out appropriate diagnosis and treatment. And so we at Malaria No More and a number of other partners began to shift our attention from making sure people got mosquito nets to making sure they knew the importance of using those mosquito mosquito nets and seeking treatment. And so we began to design very large uh, communications campaigns around the use of mosquito nets. And in doing so, we had some amazing luck and formed a number of partnerships with very, very key cultural leaders, including the Confederation of African Football, some very, very influential musicians like Yusu Endor, some really key political leaders like President Chakaya Kikwete of Tanzania, and began to use partnerships with these key cultural movers and shakers in order to capture the attention of hundreds of millions of Africans and the importance of using mosquito nets. So what kind of impact did you find that you were able to have? 
when I say that it was like impactful, it would, that would be a huge understatement. We found that because of the strategic partnerships, particularly with Confederation of African Football, we were able to capture outsized market share considering the amount of money that we are invested in these campaigns. And in doing so, we were able to reach hundreds of millions of people with relatively small, as in the low millions of media buy and creative budgets. And so we began to understand the power of these partnerships to move the needle way bigger than we ever thought. And as we met, began to move the needle on malaria, we also discovered a very fundamental truth, which is a mother who has a sick kid has a sick kid. And she wants her child to get better regardless of whether the child has malaria or pneumonia or diarrhea or any of the other afflictions that could be impacting that child. And we began to understand that we needed to move our operations to be more inclusive and to address the problem of the whole child and not just from a siloed point of view and this one particular disease. So you decided at that point that you wanted to take the approach that had been so effective in tackling malaria and look at a broader range of childhood killers. So what did you do next? So several of us uh, left Malaria No More and formed Speak Up Africa in order to do a lot of the the very similar work and mobilize and catalyze action from a government level down to a household level by using partnerships with key cultural leaders. But um, we, our focus now is across a broad range of the leading causes of death among children. Um, and those are malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, and unfortunately, in the last couple of years, Ebola. Our campaign work, therefore, is focused on the prevention and treatment of these key child killers. For people who may not have a sense of the order of magnitude, how many lives are we talking about that are at risk from diseases like this? Um, when we're talking about um, the leading causes of death among children, you're looking at, at close to 2 million lives per year across the continent of Africa from those leading causes of death. And so if one could address each of those in turn at the moment because of the massive progress that we've made against malaria, there's now pneumonia is the leading cause of death among children, and that's close to a million lives a year. And so if we can address those leading killers, then we'll largely solve the problem of deaths under five, which is a remarkable thing. And if, for example, and this just shows how ultimately these things can be very, very simple, if every child in Africa were vaccinated then um, that would largely take care of pneumonia and a rotavirus, which causes diarrhea. And so by making sure that every child in Africa is vaccinated, we can make a massive difference. And that includes all different pathogens that lead to diarrhea and pneumonia. Yeah, seem like simple things, but really, really game-changing. And, I mean, you talked about the reduction in malaria deaths as about two-thirds so, I mean, that's millions and millions of lives saved already, and then that goes on into the future, right? Exactly. And the, the 
game-changing proposition here is if everybody has a mosquito net, if everybody knows to seek treatment in their community when they have a fever and get appropriate diagnosis so they know, so if a child has a fever, does the child have malaria? In which case there is appropriate medication that will cure that child. If the child doesn't have malaria, then the child likely has pneumonia and there is a pennies on the dollar treatment for for a child with pneumonia. And and so the child has a chance of survival just if the mom is armed with appropriate information. And so that's the bottom line behind Speak Up Africa. Let's, the, our view is there's nothing more powerful than an informed mother. And if the mother knows what to do, then she will do it. Yeah. Another key point uh, that I want to raise here is, you know, as I, as I said in the beginning, when Ray Chambers set up Malaria No More and got behind the, the Millennium Development Goals that have now been converted into the Sustainable Development Goals, he understood a fundamental truth about making sure that the world knew what was needed and coalesced behind that and that governments and other donor organizations made sure that those commodities were available down to the the community level. A big part of Speak Up Africa's work is making sure that mothers understand what is needed and demand those things at the community level. So she says, where's my mosquito net? Where is my treatment for my child who has pneumonia? And that bottom-up demand hopefully meets up with uh, top-down commitment to provide those commodities and to make sure that that those technologies are available in the community. And that's another key outcome to our work. As we're raising the profile around these child diseases, what we're trying to do is make sure that governments understand the power of these key interventions and make those available to the population. And we have found that it ends up being a virtuous circle because all of the parts of society learn about these essential interventions and then the moms ask for them and then the governments understand that they really better start delivering or they're going to have a bunch of angry moms on their hands. <laughs> and, uh, and so that creates a virtual cycle of health. So describe a campaign that you would use or have used to raise awareness around some of these things to get the attention of mothers and to get the attention of governments. How does that work? A campaign that we're running literally right now alongside the Confederation of African Football's tournament, which is happening as we speak, and the finals are in Gabon in uh, in about 10 days, is we have created a campaign vehicle called Africa United. And Africa United is a partnership of a number of organizations, Speak Up Africa and an organization called Kind Communications are the campaign managers for this campaign. And we are a partnership of a whole bunch of different organizations, including the Centers for Disease Control, the World Bank, um, the Special Olympics, the Confederation of African Football, the World Health Organization, um, and a number of broadcast media partners, including organizations like Supersport and Africa 24. And all of these organizations are coming together in order to promote the idea 
of universal access to immunization. A very key intervention, as I mentioned earlier, is making sure that every kid is vaccinated from rotavirus from with a pneumococcal vaccine and making sure that those vaccinations happen in the early stages of a child's life. But the important thing is for everyone to be vaccinated and the important thing is for governments to make that happen. This campaign is using the fact that every single person in Africa is watching the Confederation of African Football and we are running television spots and radio spots alongside the tournament in order to drive people's attention to the importance of, of this vaccination. Because, and this is a really interesting point, because everybody's watching the games, therefore a lot of folks are very interested in being associated with the campaign. And so we've been able to recruit some leading lights in um, African political circles, including the president of Rwanda, uh, President Kagame, and former President Kikwete of Tanzania, and other presidents in West Africa, in order to lend their voices to the importance of universal vaccination. And this presidential leadership is key because we're encouraging action on the parts of governments. So again, it creates both a bottom-down, a bottom-down push and a bottom-up demand for these vaccination services. And it becomes then a very public commitment on the part of those government leaders, right? As you said, everyone is watching. <laughs> exactly. And we have found that, you know, and this has been true on our malaria campaigns and everything, if a president makes a commitment publicly alongside a very famous footballer like Didier Drogba or alongside Yusuf Ndor in Senegal or leading musicians in Cameroon, he can't very easily back away from that commitment later. And if he does, then there are millions of people holding him to account. And so this combination of public commitment alongside celebrities on broadcast television and radio is kind of a magic that we have found really works. Very powerful. Now, I mean, the way you're describing your work, it's very high impact. You've got a lot of traction. You've got a lot of amazing partners. But... Not that long ago, despite your wealth of experience, you were in startup mode for Speak Up Africa. And I know that there are a lot of listeners who are themselves in that mode or thinking about starting up a nonprofit organization. What were some of the highs and lows of that journey for you in the early days of setting up the organization? In the early days of Speak Up Africa, I actually thought, and my colleagues who left Malaria No More with me, to start Speak Up Africa, we all thought it was going to be easy right. <laughs> because we thought that that we we had a magic formula that uh, worked and we had amazing traction and we could point to a huge evidence, including in you know scientific journals, that our model worked and. We knew we had a lot of connections among donor organizations and certainly a lot of connections in, in Africa. And we decided to set up Speak Up Africa because we thought that there was a dearth of African voices in a lot of these large partnership circles that were held off in, in Geneva or in New York and didn't include enough of an African voice. And we found that rather ironic, given that the problems everyone was seeking to, to solve were African problems. And so we 
had found that our campaigns only worked if they were led by and executed by Africans. And that would naturally be true on the definition of problem solving and what would work and what wouldn't. And so we thought there needed to be a huge African voice at the table. So we thought, A, we had methodologies that worked. B, we had all these contacts among donors and in countries. And C, we were the real deal. We were all African. I'm, I'm the exception, um, and I'm in New York partnering with folks, but all of our board and everyone, they're all African, and our headquarters are in Dakar, Senegal. And we thought, therefore, that people would be knocking down our door. And actually, we found that that was not so true, and that it took an awful lot of knocking on doors and to borrow from our friends at Hamilton, being in the room when it happened, in order to uh, create traction. And so we spent many, many months, actually, sitting in partnership meetings and kind of being in the room in uh, the child health communities, which were not where we came from. We came out of malaria. So we were now new to pneumonia, new to diarrhea, new to immunization. And we spent a lot of time sitting in rooms, collectively problem solving in order to build the trust that led to people coming to us and believing that, oh, maybe what had worked in malaria could work in these other areas. And I, I think the only thing that I could say is putting the time in with folks is, is the thing that mattered uh, from our point of view in getting traction. And once we got traction, then the traction feeds itself. But for a long time, we felt like we were just spinning our wheels in sand. And it's hard, right? I mean, I think I, through Very that hard. process, I remember talking to you and you don't know if it's all going to turn around and if somebody's going to listen and, and pick up on this idea that you feel so passionate about and so convinced about the chances exactly. of success. Yeah. So, I mean, that to me, you've said it clearly, but to reiterate to listeners, the power and importance of just showing up, knowing where the conversations are that are relevant to the work that you're trying to do somehow getting your foot in the door in those conversations and being there, being part of those conversations and kind of having the tenacity that you and your colleagues did to stick with it until you got traction. Um, Anytime we do a very large campaign, we do it with so many partners and it's because everybody has a different set of stakeholders and everybody has a different asset to bring to the table and by building cross-sectoral partnerships, we're able to reach much bigger populations. So I would say another kind of takeaway is humility, mm -hmm. you know, understanding that we have a model that works. We have a series of principles that we find we get really excited about because we find they work in all kinds of settings, but we can't do anything if we do not have partners from all these other sectors who also have their own technology and their own ideas to bring to bear. And so it's only by sitting for a long time with each of them and understanding what their realities are that we can actually build something together. And how important, I mean, I had the pleasure of having an opportunity to connect with you and your team at the point when you were thinking about how do we articulate our story. You knew what you wanted to do, but that work of being able to sit 
in a room with a potential funder or partner and quickly and clearly articulate your idea. I think it's something that many founders of nonprofits and many leaders of established nonprofits have to grapple with. How difficult was that for you or how much of a difference did it make once you felt really, really clear about what you were, what you stood for and how you worked? Well, it's critical and it's funny and you were very instrumental in turning us in a positive direction. So I want to give a shout out to to your services in particular because you helped us go from a little bit of floundering. Were we behavior change? Were we policy? What were we? And tightening our value proposition for uh, a variety of stakeholders, including our end users and our donors. But we, this is another thing that was very humbling. We thought we were communication <laughs> specialists, and we did a terrible job of telling what we did. And right. so, <laughs> yeah, well, what's um, the leaky plumber with the the, t- the plumber with the leaky taps, right? Exactly, exactly. So, um, getting outside help to bring some rigor to that has been essential, and that, frankly, is an ongoing process. Yeah. Um, and we're always trying to refine our value proposition. And frankly, our value proposition shifts with time. And so we always have to, to keep learning and, and pushing. I think that's very powerful too, though. I think a lot of organizations think, oh, I did that work. We did a strategic plan five years ago, or we had a communications document. But if what you're really interested in is an outcome, then the most effective organizations work just in the way that you've described, which is that perpetual challenging. What are we learning? How do we change our model? How do we tweak? And I think way back when you talked about your business experience and how that played in and how Ray's business experience played in with thinking about Malaria No More and that structure. And I think that's one of the things that comes from there is a kind of a willingness and a nimbleness around in the business world, if it's not making money, then it doesn't work. And so the equivalent for the nonprofit has to be if we're not having impact, then we need to keep, or if we're not having as much impact as we like, or we think that one thing is working better than another to do more of the thing that's working and less of the thing that isn't. So that's very wise counsel too. What advice would you have for people who are thinking of setting up a nonprofit? Just do it. That is, that's actually my advice. Just do it. The the thing there is so many people have passion about things and there's so many problems to solve, especially these days. And that has to do with, you know, the domestic situation in the U.S. and and internationally. And there's just so much that needs to happen. And so it's so often people just sit and get scared and see all this in front of them and say, well, I can't start. And my my advice is just start. And, and always be open to adjusting how your model works. And my biggest advice and something that I'm always open to, and if any of your listeners have any ideas for this, I'd be very welcome to hearing them, um, that is be open to transforming your business model as you go. So I'm always thinking, who should I partner with? Should I partner with somebody much bigger than ourselves so that I can extend my reach should should we divest parts of our business and and streamline what we're doing? Um, but just moving is is really important. Very powerful, and I think especially as you said in these times when there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, and you know, regardless of the political context, we know that there is still a ton of inequality and injustice in this world. And your encouragement to people to just step up, step in, get active and do something is, I think, very timely and very powerful. 
How can listeners get involved in Speak Up Africa if they've been energized like I have by listening to you describe the literally life-changing and life-saving work that you're doing? Please contact me, and hopefully my contact information will be added to the end of this podcast. But we also have a website, speakupafrica.org. So go to our website, send us a message. And we always need new partners, you know, on the corporate side, on the the media side, on the strategic side, on the citizen engagement side, there are elements for each of our campaigns that could use help. And so we'd love more participation. And just so just once again, the name of the website? Speakupafrica.org. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you, Kate. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. As always, incredibly inspiring to hear your energy and your impact. Thank you for our listeners. If you're a leader looking for help in changing the world, remember that you can join the Mission Control community at www.missioncontrolbook.com. You'll find articles, more podcasts like this, and a heap of other tools. Thank you for all that you're doing and all the work that you're doing. Thank you again to our guest, Kate Campana, the CEO of Speak Up Africa. This is Mission Control with Liana Downey, and I'll speak with you soon.